0: to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. Today, we are pleased to talk with another icon in critical pedagogy, Professor Shirley Steinberg. She is the Workland Research Professor of Critical Youth Studies at the University of Calgary, Canada. Steinberg embodies Paulo Freire's dictum of reading the word and the world, as is evidenced in her work in youth and cultural and media studies, anti-imperial education, constructivist theory, qualitative research, critical diversity studies, refugee studies, combating Islamophobia, and much more. Steinberg lives out her research and her global and local work, in particular with refugees and youth. With her late partner, Joe Kincholo, Steinberg co-founded the Paulo and Nita Freire International Project of Critical Pedagogy which deals with critical cultural community youth and media activism. And she serves as the executive director. is the founding editor of the journal Taboo, the Journal of Cultural and Educational, uh, Culture and Education, and the International Journal of Youth Studies, and is on the board of the International Journal of Critical Pedagogy. She's the author of numerous books and articles, including Kinder Culture, The Corporate Construction of Childhood, and with Donald Macedo, Media Literacy, a Reader. Steinberg is the recipient of many awards, including the Paulo Freire Lifetime Achievement Award for Social Justice and Education from the American Educational Research Association in 2011. We are talking to Professor Steinberg in the midst of a global pandemic. For some of us, this pandemic has exposed what we already knew about neoliberal higher education, the proliferation of the banking model of education, top-down power relations, undemocratic classrooms and departments, etc. In her work in critical pedagogy, Steinberg has long been challenging and resisting the status quo and showing us another way for democracy. Professor Steinberg, we appreciate you taking time to talk with us today about your vision of education and hope you and your family are doing well. Hi, Tina,
1: it's my pleasure to join you. And yes, we are doing well. We uh, kind of escaped to Canada, so uh, that's what we did. (laughs) I um, work in Canada, but also um, spent a lot of time working in New York and was in New York at the time, and it, d- it didn't take very long to know we needed to get across the border and come to Canada as quickly as possible. Ah, good,
0: glad
2: you're safe. Thank nice you. to be in a place with socialized healthcare, I bet.
1: Uh, that's uh, part of the absolute reason because um, it's, it's safe, especially when you're not, when you're in the age that's targeted by COVID, you wanna make sure that you don't have any uh, restrictions or any lack of access to healthcare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, we're so glad you're here, Shirley. Um I just want to start out with a question about how you how you came into critical pedagogy both in your life and also the main theoretical influences on you as you've as you've grown in this work.
1: Well, of course, the are the influences got me are it's the cart before the horse. I don't know which happened first, but I was a a masters no, I was a What was I? I guess I was a bachelor's student in a small school called University of Lethbridge in southern Alberta. I am not a Canadian, but I had originally been married to a Canadian. And so I was getting my bachelor's there. And I met a professor, Julia Ellis, who was a a gifted education professor. And I worked a tremendous amount of time with her and traveled with her, gave a lot of speeches. And this is during my bachelor's. And I noticed seeing a book on her shelf by Ira Shore and and Paulo Freire. And I started to talk to her about it. She just gave me some information. And then right after that, I, I joined the master's program at the university. And I had a professor called David Smith. And Smith one day uh, played a film called Starting from Nina. And it was a 1970s film taken in, done in Toronto where Paulo Freire narrated and discussed his work. and. I was so taken by this. The work he'd done was with the poor working class people, Portuguese refugees, not refugees, I'm sorry, uh, migrants, mostly from the Algarve who had come to Toronto to work. So they were bricklayers, they were masons, they were iron workers. And so their kids were being taught in these public schools. And that's how it all started. I started to watch this this film, um, how teachers were talking to children about who they were and, and what their parents were going through and what was it like to work in a factory and what happened if you got hurt when you were working, uh, laying bricks and this kind of conversation. And it was so different than a take on education that I'd ever had. And then I started to, I had to do a book report and I picked Paolo Freire, I picked uh, the Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So this part of the story is just like, half of the people in my field, we we started to read the book and we couldn't put it down. I mean, and that really is, that was Kinchlow, that's Giroux, that's McLaren. All of us kind of came to it really by his own words. And I was so taken by this notion of understanding oppression that one, in order to understand their own lives, if they were oppressed, had to understand the notion of impression, of oppression. And that empowerment was not something that we could give as teachers, that it was something that had to be possibly facilitated but learned. And that I had also done this work in Gifted Ed and I'd wor- worked on the notion of Satori, which is the aha moment. And I think that was Paul Torrance's stuff. and this was my aha this was my aha as a woman as a jew and all these other things was i don't wouldn't i don't like to say i have been oppressed as a jew i have been treated in an anti-Semitic way. I do say, and I don't know that I've ever met a woman who would say that she had not been oppressed because she was a woman. Now, oppressed doesn't particularly mean in jail, enslaved, or beaten, but I've never met a female who has not been held down because of her looks or her job or promoted because of her looks or treated in a different way so I started to understand oppression is that until I can name how this has come about what's the etymology what is the notion of oppression I will never get I will never progress and so all these things came as a collision at the same time and then at that same time later in that fall Julia Ellis said you need to go to this conference in Ohio it's the most unique curriculum conference you'll ever go to you have to go to it and so I went with her, and that's where I met Joe Kinchelow And so it all came together. Joe had started, this was in 1989, Joe had started to be very, very um, engaged in the notion of critical pedagogy. And we got, I mean, we moved in together uh, very quickly. I left Canada. I moved to live with him in Clemson, South Carolina, <clears throat> which is a great place to learn to how to read the world, to to go to a racist part of the world that is obviously racist, because I would argue that most places are, but this Mm was Clemson, South Carolina, and the Faculty of Education was housed in the building called Tillman Hall, named after Pitchfork Ben Tillman, one of the most noted slave owners, and he used to attack his slaves with a pitchfork, and his statue stands in front of the Faculty of Education. It is still there today, and the faculty is still called that. So these were all personal things that added to how I came about this. After Joe and I moved in together, Donaldo Macedo, who was a friend of, of uh, well, a colleague of Joe's, called us. We had met him once, and he said, Paulo Freire is coming to Harvard, and he's going to be doing a fellowship here. We're having dinner on Sunday, and we want you to join us. And we had no money. We d- I don't know how we got the money to fly to Boston, but we went uh, to Boston and spent the day with Paulo and that began kind of restarted our entire career and way of seeing the world. So that's how I got into it. Wow.
0: Oh, fantastic. Well, that got you uh, uh, the background and the, the underpinning for your work in, in critical youth studies. Um, so you moved from there to do youth studies uh, media studies. so could you talk about uh, that progression and that that journey? my area um... I've
1: always, I've just always loved media. I, I will, always will. And I, I love uh, the notion of media. I was raised in LA, so I was raised in that Hollywood vibe. So very aware of the notion of, how, of production. I was in speech, in speech and debate all through high school and did a lot of broadcasting. I had my own t- cable TV show out of uh, Costa Mesa, California. That was broadcast in in this small area. It was one of the first cable shows ever done. It was in 1967, uh, I think, or 68. And I would was would commentate on the events of the high school. And so I was always kind of a media driven person. And then all through my adult life i've worked with media done a lot of newspaper and especially in canada tremendous amount of broadcasting radio and tv so it's always been in my blood and and basically when i um fin- did my phd i went to uh where did i do it i did it at penn state and that was another you know always the 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 critical pedagogy people and up uh, I, I had been with Joe about three years we had gotten married and uh, we left South Carolina we went to um, Miami for two years the the week we got there we lost our house in Hurricane Andrew and so all these things add you know personal experience creates the understanding because you understand that if you are a privileged person middle class professor and you lose your house you'll get another place to live with four kids and three dogs in five minutes but I went over to to take to go see the guy who did some yard work for us and he lived only a mile away across like a ravine um in southern in in kendall in 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 south miami and i had to drive over there and they had nothing they 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 were you know african-american living in a black neighborhood And they they were absolutely bewildered. We had gone to State Farm in three days, had been given like $200,000 a check just to tide us over. They'd gotten us a new place. I mean, our life in the hurricane was like, It was just, you know, oh, our pool changed from one pool to another. Whereas I go over to an upper class black neighborhood. I'm not talking I went to, you know, a, a bad part of town or in what would be called a bad neighborhood. I went to a black area of, of a tract home, of lovely ranch homes, and they had nothing. They had no electricity, no water, no sanitation. So your life is always hitting you, especially when you are able to understand privilege. You, It almost is like bullets, especially in the United States because you're getting hit by them constantly. The inequity of Americans is continually phenomenal. And so I went, um, so that was that Miami experience. We moved from Miami. Um, Joe got a job as a professor, Henry Giroux facilitated it, and we went up there to work with Henry. And I started my PhD in literacy, and it's, I was told, and I wanted to do youth, because I was obsessed with youth zines. In those days, in the olden days when we had paper, the youth would create their own magazines, and they would uh, art, they would you do the art they would do the writing they would do everything and my son was 16 and he was a zine writer Mm -hmm. and uh, so i was very aware of zines in fact the when the hurricane destroyed our house around us joe and i three dogs and three kids were in the bathroom Mm -hmm. hiding and ian had a notebook and for the eight hours we were in this room during the hurricane He wrote and he wrote and he wrote and he wrote and he turned this into a zine. And so I was so interested in his process and how he dealt with his fear of maybe dying and his terror and his thought about the world in writing this zine. And so I went and uh, to Penn State planning to do it on zines. And I was promptly told by my advisor who had funded me that okay, it sounds like it sounds like you want to. do your your uh, your work uh, on on psychology, and you want to do your work looking at Vygotsky. and you were a Vygotsky, and I can tell. And I rode with that for about ten minutes, and I realized that this man was telling me what my field was. And so I had a very difficult time the first two years. And finally, he and I ended up in a in a huge disagreement. I left and got another advisor. And he said, what do you want to do your dissertation on? I said, I want to do it on film, on media. I want to do it on the 80s, on John Hughes movies. I want to do it on teenagers. And he said, go with it. So that's how I, I got into working with youth, was I was so interested in how youth were motivated and who they were. And so I decided I would do the you know Pretty in Pink Breakfast Club Fast Times at Ridgemont High, those kind of movies, mm-hmm. and so I did um, what I think was a really great film analysis, and during that time, I said to Joe, you know, there's a word in French that is is doing what I'm doing, because I don't really like, everybody would, you know, even my, my uh, professor would say, well, you need to do uh, constructivism, or you need to do critical pedagogy, or you need to do... Um, uh film analysis and you need to do this and you need to do that and it was always a what i the one thing i had to do case studies interviews and i just said this isn't working because i have about 10 different ways i'm doing this i'm using like all these methodologies i'm using all these philosophies and i said i remember a word from french that i learned and it's bricolage And this is what it is. I'm doing a bricolage. And so Jost and I started to to research it. And Norm and Yvonne, Denson and Lincoln, had written an earlier piece on bricolage. And then we started to find out that Levi Strauss had talked about bricolage. And so I said, well, I don't want to do anything else. I want to do a bricolage. And so I went and talked to my advisor. And I said, "I, I want to do everything you suggested and more, but I want to do it in the way I can do it and this is how I'll do my analysis of youth and film and he said roll with it and so I did it and so I think I'm the first bricolage professor at least in education who who did it in her dissertation but that brought me into my love of working with youth well what i found though once again you always find what you're not looking for is i was just going to do an analysis of this is a film i wanted to see how john hughes worked, what motivated the film i wanted to do all the answers that were typical in finding out about youth But what I found out in my analysis, because it was so layered by so many different methodologies that was shouting at me was, and I used I think 17 films, was this isn't about youth in the youth sense, this is about the culture, this is about the writers and editors and auteurs who create these films and this is about white privilege every single every single film was just shouted the notion of white privilege and so my whole dissertation flip-flopped and mm-hmm. it became on it became on white privilege and this was in the early 90s i guess mm-hmm. and so once again what i was not looking for hit me so and then of course critical pedagogy is always my I don't like to say Godfather because I don't really like to to gender even Paulo <laughs> because Paulo was such a non gendered person. He was not. He was not a dad or a father, but he was like. Oh, as a hue, you know, when he was alive, he was like a, an influential, aura that was always there, and he would always say things that just would make you reflect, because I had several times I met him and I went to Brazil to see him a few times, you know, so we had a relationship I did a book with him um, and it was always about how he influenced in such a non-attempt to influence, he would just say I remember at dinner, the first dinner we were out with him, he would just say we would talk about his wife a lot, his, his second wife but he would talk very well about his first wife so, and he would talk about radicality and how critical pedag- pedagogy is is not radical in a revolutionary obvious nature, but it's much more subtle. And I remember him the first day he ever said, take the notion of radical love, for instance. And it that's a phrase that had not occurred to us. And he, and he talked about how one applies their political and public love with their personal and community and familial love and he would just say things like take this and he would just go on and explain without being an explainer if that makes sense Uh it was always so gentle and so that's kind of how I got into youth studies was through my dissertation, and then of course always being influenced by those gentle words and and the writings of Paulo. Working with Paulo, understanding how he did things, and that nothing was ever a it was never Frarian to Paulo ever. He hated that phrase. He was. He did. He was not a leader of a little group of culty little hippy dippy people. That's not who he was. He was not a leader of males. He was. He was not. He didn't go out to find people who liked his work. They just came to him. And um, one of the most disturbing things in uh, the '90s was an, a writer whose name I just don't even want. to, I never use her name, but who wrote a very nasty, indicting. Um, attack against critical pedagogy, basically implying that it was rock and roll pedagogy for white men. And I spent a lot of time in a segue after my starting with youth, and a lot of time as a voice of women and feminists to combat that because I was married to one of the white men that was cited. And I was very best friends with the other men that were cited. And by her doing that was a an anti-feminist act in not acknowledging me, Antonia Darder, Nita Freire, Deborah Britzman, Patty Lather—all these women who had worked very hard to be emancipatory—and just because some of the men had long hair and kind of were rock and roll personalities, this attack on critical pedagogy really hurt the field, mm-hmm. and um, it remains. I to the like about 5 months ago i was reading a dissertation once again citing this asinine article from the 90s attacking and never never attacking critical pedagogy never saying well this is a has fallacies and it doesn't work it was always just about the personality and it was never a cult of personality it's just people who are motivators get together and motivate and some of them had long hair and earrings as men, and they liked rock and roll, you know, that kind of
0: I appreciate you saying that. That's quite a famous article. It is, infamous to me. Yes, (laughs) yes.
2: Wow, surely, like, there's so much I wanna ask you. So I have two different questions. I'm just gonna limit myself to one right now, and we'll get back to it. Um, When you were first talking about confronting whiteness and privilege and um, class, in the aftermath of this hurricane, it made me think about your work on, um, you, and which appears across across so many of your interviews, your articles about schools existing to serve capitalism. And I thought about the ways that in the in the immediate wake of so many disasters, there is an there is a special pressure placed on schools to do the work of disaster capitalism. So you could like think about New Orleans after Katrina and the influx of charter schools You could think about right now, I'm so aware in um, as we all navigate COVID-19 Teachers everywhere at all levels are being um, asked to transition online and there are these questions about will this be the new normal? Um, so I'm curious about your thoughts about both both our sort of durative present that we're in um, disaster capital teaching um, How do you how have you thought about intervening in that?
1: Wow, I've been thinking I mean it's been almost the one thing that's on my mind more than anything right now because we're in a disaster and I I'm just astounded, at, and Katrina's a brilliant thing to, I think it's funny because we've had so many bad hurricanes since then, but Katrina destroyed New Orleans, and if you've been back, I mean, I was just there last year, and it will never be the same, it was gutted, it was decimated, and it was racially decimated. Um, and Houston was racially changed, and it was all this trickle down changes. But the school districts and the way they were treated, and now I opened the paper, what the the paper online yesterday or the day before, and this another name I won't mention, but the moronic president of the United States, um, laying out a get out of jail plan for May 1st. And one of the first articles is schools will open as if he cared anything about education, as if the government cared about education. The only reason is for what all my teachers are telling me now is to be babysitters so that workers can go back to school. Have we come this far to go so little that Horace Mann created schools in order for factory workers to have their kids go to schools and people like Rudolf steiner had schools in, fa- in cigarette factories so that workers would send their kid well you know what i'm going to give a forgiveness for those intents because this was in the industrial age and the whole world was changing and now over 120 30 years later we're in the same position that schools are going to be open so we can babysit kids so that that economy can get kickstarted. I can't even begin to comprehend this. I was just on the phone with Ed, Edmund Ajepong, who is my colleague, and I write with him, um, along with Chris Emden, and they do a work in science and math education, and they, they in, um, work in hip-hop education. That's what I do in New York. I work with them. And I was asking him because we're very close friends. Edmund lives with is partner in Mount Vernon, New York, which is in Westchester County. And so I said to him, you know, how's your family? And everybody, what's so funny is in this day, and I know you've seen this, about a week ago, it kind of dawned on the media and they're like, it's like a newsflash. What is this we're seeing? Is this, is there a racial divide? How is this happening to more black and brown people? Like, all of a sudden, a big a big light bulb came up in their idiot minds <laughs> to say, oh, black and brown people are being treated different in a pandemic. Well, what on earth would you expect? We saw black bodies floating by in Katrina. Are we not going to assume that the same thing is going to happen in a pandemic? So I asked Edmund about it, and I said, you live in Mount Vernon, which is predominantly a black upper middle class neighborhood in westchester which we all know has like the highest te- you know taxes in the universe and so it's a very you know well healed community it's not ghettoized at all and he said well um out of my family six members of my mom's church have died what i mean like i'm like like i, I hadn't even thought it like what? And then he said, about six to eight, maybe ten people, friends in our immediate area, have died as well. And I, I asked him to talk a bit about us, What is there to say? It's, it's not. It, it people assume when they say that a poor neighborhood or Katrina, everybody in Katrina who died or were hurt that were black were poor ghetto black people. That's not the case. It's, it's, it's about access in a lot of ways. And it's about how you are treated. And if you want to get tested and you're black, you think two or three times more before you attempt to get texted because you know you are black or brown. And so it becomes a very insidious, much more sophisticated racism. It's not like, oh, I live um, uh, on 150th in Harlem, and that happens to be kind of a sketchy block. And so I, you know, I don't have access. Not that at all, it's the understanding that I am black, I am brown, I have an accent, my access just for testing is going to be different. So, when I deal with this, I'm going to have to deal with it knowing that I'm going into an institutionally racist system in order to even get tested or examined. Mm -hmm. And so, I have seen it's it's beyond understanding white privilege it's beyond the warm fuzzies of tearful uh, apology for um being racist it's 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 all you know it's much more past that we are living the united states is an institutionally racist country it was ra- it was created on racism on the backs of slaves the constitution was written and we've never had these conversations and our schools now have become of course little cells of 40 and 50 kids in a classroom in New York City um, with white teachers not knowing what they're doing and black and brown teachers not able to articulate a way to truly create an education for them so now in a pandemic we see that the first fall back on in the country is to stick get get the kids back to school not once was it ever said in this plan that our children are suffering they're not learning they're missing their friends they need curriculum that has not been articulated by the government no we need to get the kids in school so mom and dad can go back to work probably still sick but they can go back to work this is horrendous this is shocking this is not this is not a free country this is a country about incarceration about putting people in places and then moving the pieces it's a lego country and you move this lego block so we're going to m- build these lego blocks take them away from the the quarantine families and build the now the schools and now we have little lego paths walking back to the mm-hmm. schools we don't even know if kids can get this virus and yet and now teachers are now treated like no and no, no discussion that our first line workers, the teachers, the things we know, the three of us know about how important teachers are, have never been articulated by the government. Honestly. So here we are in a pandemic. Once again, black and brown people are disenfranchised. Poor people are disenfranchised. The old people are disenfranchised. The children and youth are disenfranchised because they're just throwaway commodities to get mom and dad back to work. And once again, we find ourselves in a government that sees only capital as the important thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, you talk a lot in your work about um, curriculum and especially curriculum in the United States. Uh, And Freire is is famous for having said education is either for freedom or domestication. And and, in what ways are you seeing, you know, you wrote a lot about 9-11, but here we are, you know, so many years later and there's still this um, especially with the current Secretary of Education um, even more emphasis on the curriculum of domestication oh my gosh it's
1: you know I mean I like all adoration worship and love to Obama but boy he blew it with education I mean Mm -hmm. you know we can say baby Bush did a mess with, with no child left behind but race to the top was one of the dumbest things we've ever done. And having Duncan in there was the dumbest when he had been talking to Linda Darling Hammond and Gloria Latts and Billings about possible or his people about possibly bringing in a real educator Uh and bringing in that horrible, stupid woman whose offices are closed most of the time. I have friends that have um, charters schools or new schools that they're working on they can never get through there's no answer there's not even there's not even a robot voice that answers the i would say that education has been closed down for 4 years but with honestly with president obama kind of with 12 years at least with the mcgraw hill invasion of education through um, No Child Left Behind. They were so concerned about making money and selling their stupid running records and their success for all and all that stuff that they did actually make an attempt to have a conversation. But with when Race to the Top came and Obama would do his couple little token speeches on this and Pearson took over the entire universe when it came to publishing. And then the core, core was created. We have basically stopped education. I don't even, I mean, we have to have a conversation about decanonizing the curriculum. We don't even teach the canon anymore. I mean, I'm sorry, I was raised with the canon. We we're you know, Tina and I are old enough to have had canonical education. Shakespeare and all that. I would give anything to go back to that because at least a canonical education from our era was rounded. It had specific topics, and our kids learned grammar. They learned how to write. I mean, this has been a free-for-all attempt to do nothing but drum in some math and science and and get kids to spell. There's been absolutely no attempt for comprehension. Even the stupidity of critical thinking. And I'm using quotes around that, that stupid, ridiculous use of the word critical. But at least that stuff was step by step methodological, kind of up to maybe the third step of Bloom's taxonomy. But we're now down, we're not even on a taxonomy anymore. We are just teaching to nothing. Kids are gra- barely graduating. And it's not, the thing is, is it's not about money. It's not about capitalism because my visits to Cuba tell me that 99.9% of a very poor country learns to read and write and comprehend. So there is something mu- very, very wrong. And to ever say it's money, it's not money. It's just about the, the lack of philosophical. Social sociological grounding in education. And too many people have said this before, but we have lost the foundations of education. Um, you know, like I look at, Tina, you're in Georgia. I mean, I look at back what used to be and like at UGA and notions of foundations, educations, where we taught history, philosophy, and sociology of education in three courses. And that was to undergrads. Our graduate students, I have grad students I actually taught a grad student yesterday. I teach it, I still teach um, online, one particular class. And uh, I asked nine grad students how many of them were familiar with Freddie's work. This is in a cultural relevance course. Only three out of eight doc students had ever read Paula Freddie. So, and then I asked one person quoted Dewey, and someone said, oh, I've never read Dewey. This is a grad course. I mean. We have, we have, our schools have been decimated. It's like um, the idea of the parable about building your house on sand. We don't even have sand. We don't even, we don't have a foundation. We are like below the ground in the water murking around in mud. Because our foundations of education from Reagan, and I would say, I would always, I have always said that 1983, a nation at risk, the report on educational excellence that was commissioned by Ronald Reagan, which Bill Clinton was a part of, but no educator was, was the number one start to the end of education in the 20th century. And I believe it has just gotten worse. Every president made it worse. And now we're here with Amway, as president or as a secretary of education, mm-hmm. and really doing nothing. I mean, we are lucky. The schools are still getting funding at all, in my opinion. Yeah. So, what are we? What are we in? I mean, it's a rant. And you, any any of my colleagues, my the people who, you know, you guys probably have the same rant. But kids are now. Now they've been named this week, and this is a seminal week. The day that stupid report came out yesterday. The day before. This is seminal. This is a seminal part in education that we are now told without any any curtains, any cover, any veil, that kids are the commodity and the key to getting this country back to work.